Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. Post-Wimbledon, a lot to talk about about the all-time action at the All England Club this year. Special guest on the show, first time joining the podcast. Tennis has no shortage of broadcasters that are exceptional. This guy might be the most, dare I say, enthusiastic in all of the sport. Coming up on close to 20 years in the broadcast booth a tremendous asset to the tennis community. You can catch him on a lot of different platforms. He covered, covered Wimbledon on the radio this past year. You'll see him on tennis TV and a lot of other hosts and channels. Robbie Canning, welcome to the show. Really looking forward to chatting with you. Hey, thanks, Mitch. Thanks for that awesome introduction. Um, I haven't worked a day in my life, I'll be honest. Uh, yeah. I love my playing career, and I was so blessed to get into the, the broadcasting business as well, actually courtesy of Jason Goodall. Yeah. Uh, Jason to thank for that um, but yeah I love what I do and to be calling some of these matches at Wimby this year even though it was for radio this time it's my one gig a year where I do radio it's so much fun man uh, to yeah. be at the All England Club in the middle of the summer had some decent weather doesn't get much better than that no it doesn't and I'm glad you mentioned Jason Goodall I've had the chance to talk to him a few times in the last couple of years uh, you two specifically for Someone in my age demographic in the United States, that's how we kind of discovered you was through the world feed with Jason Goodall and some of those epic matchups that he really, and I think that's one of the things I want to get into before we get to Wimbledon is that there's so much tennis that goes on all around the world in all different times of the year that you can kind of just forget about the non-slam, non-major events, but your broadcast team with Jason, other tournaments you've covered, it really is a global game. And the fact that there's just so much tennis to offer really does stand out about the sport. It's so true, especially these days, so much when Jason and I were early days of the World Feed ATP Media, um, it was only the Masters 1000s, and then it was a couple of the 500s. Now it's Masters 1000s, 500s, and most of the 250s now get put up. And uh, of course, one of the big uh, beneficiaries of that are the betting companies because they have so much more content. Yeah. Of course, the, you know, the tennis networks now, like Tennis Channel, they've got content literally every week multiple tournaments going on and then you know so much revenue to be made off the back of that advertising for you guys the betting sites have got plenty of content too so you know if you're a tennis fan everyone's a winner man yeah yeah we certainly are there's no shortage of good content good matches uh and your career just wanted to touch on a few things what was that transition like you know your playing career you had the doubles runs where you, you know, made some U.S. Open runs there and, and, you know, had a successful playing career. But what was the transition like when you go, you know, I want to stay involved in the sport. You mentioned Jason Goodall and you, you transitioned to broadcasting. How was it like to go from playing to behind the microphone? And what was that adjustment period like? The adjustment period was a year because I coached Wesley Moody and Mahesh Bhupati, um in 2006. But halfway through the year, Wesley had enough of me. And at Wimbledon, he said, listen, I don't want to work with you anymore. Mahesh wanted to carry on. And it was like, whoa, just like that, the guys want to work with me. 
And so, you know, it was a real jolt as far as the coaching world was concerned. And actually prior to that happening at Wimbledon, I'd bumped into Jason and, and he was like, you know, what are you doing? I hadn't seen him in a while. And um, I said, no, I'm coaching. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm doing, you know, ATP Media World Feed. Never heard of it. It was still in its infancy. Yeah. He's like, would you ever get into co uh, commentating? And I was like, no, I love this coaching gig right now. It's the next best thing to playing. Um, only to lose half of my job in July. And, um, you know, I, I went back, not directly to Jason, but the head of production at the time. And I kind of nailed things down in the summer, right before the US Open, I'd commentated. I was coaching in Cincinnati and Canada. And I'd done, I'd done bits and pieces of sets here and there when mm -hmm. I was my coaching responsibilities. And I'd go hang out with Jason in the booth and we just talked tennis. And the guys from ATP Media at the time, you know, Dom Gresse and Steve Plaster, they said, hey, Robbie, we, we, we love you as a commentator. Is it something you consider doing next year? And um, it was such an easy decision because, like I said, I just lost half my job. They were offering me, you know, all nine Masters 1000s, traveling on site and, you know, stable income. I knew when I was flying. I knew when I was coming home. Oh. And, yeah, and that's how, I, that's how it all started, eh, Mitch? Wow, it's, it's interesting, too. I mean, all you need is that opportunity and that spark to set it. And here we are, yeah. you know, a couple of decades later, still going strong. I, I have yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like I, I had to I have to also bring this up because I mentioned the enthusiasm and, you know, your wordplay is kind of the stuff of legends. So I want to know where that came from and how that, you know, comes out of you in big matches. Some of the phrasing, some of the exciting, yeah. you know, wordsmith wordplay that you use to describe some of the scintillating action. Yeah, so, so I worked quite hard on that. You know, when social media first started coming out and it started to play a bigger role in tennis, and I'd go back and listen to cuts of points that were played. And of course, you know, generally it's the highlights of, of what's going on in a match. And I found that I was often using the same adjectives to describe unbelievable points. And it was just basically very repetitive. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not innovative, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't enough mix of a description like sport variety or something variety yeah. not enough variety and you know sport by, by nature is repetitive especially our sport there's only so many ways um what you think you can describe a foreign cross-court winner or you know foreign down the line winner and you don't want to say the obvious oh it's an unbelievable foreign down the line winner because everybody can see that at home right yeah so when that started to happen in, in social media, and I found I was saying, oh, that's an unbelievable shot. That's an unbelievable shot. That's an unbelievable shot. But those shots in real time have happened 10 or 15 minutes apart. Then I realized I was just using the same adjectives all the time. And I said, listen, I have to be better than this. And how I started was I just, you know, I'd go to the, the, the uh, thesaurus and just look up unbelievable and see the different ways uh, of the, the synonyms for unbelievable, yeah. you know, jaw-dropping, redlining, whatever it might be. So then I, I literally started to make notes to improve my vocabulary so that my presentation and content could be better. And then that, that have just evolved over time, right? And then you, know, you read something good in a sports book or a phrase that I listened to somebody on basketball using. I, I like the phrase, but that's very basketball specific. How can I use that in a tennis term, you know? So I would start to really work on my language and, and get better in that department because ultimately I'm in the speaking game, right? Yeah. 
speaking yeah. an analysis game. So, you know, that, that's where I want it to be. And naturally, I'm an enthusiastic guy. So when somebody does hit an unbelievable shot, I don't want to be saying, oh, that's an unbelievable falling down the line, right? Because someone at home thinking, I mean, Robbie's hardly got up for that. The guy's just like an absolute screamer. And is he watching the same match as me? Mm -hmm. I'm a sports fan like everybody else, right? I mean, yeah. I get so excited naturally. I'm naturally an enthusiastic guy. So, but also the, the discipline when you, when you get a nice word or phrase, and this is something I used to do in the early days, you just crowbar it in there because you think, hey, it's such a nice phrase. I must use it. And then you realize, oh, shit, man, you know, it wasn't the right time, wasn't the right place, and it wasn't the right player. And then some phrases, you know, I try and keep specifically for a player that just suits that certain player. And then sometimes, you know, you'd wait a whole tournament and you wouldn't get to use it because he would lose early. And then I got to wait another two weeks because he's not playing. Yeah. And that would frustrate me. But the, the pleasure it would give me when I picked the right moment to describe an unbelievable shot or rally or, or something that happens in a match was the skill that I started to develop. Just the patience, just be patient, right? Yeah. Well, hey, that's a great lesson to the kids out there, right? Read more and then just pick up more words and it'll help you in, you know, a lot of different fields, tennis being one of them. Uh, but yeah. no, the personality bubbling to the surface too. We, we all see that. And and uh, some broadcasters might get mad at me, but I feel like you were the first person to, you know, start coining the maestro term for Federer. I don't know if it was before you with some of the verbiage with him and how graceful he was out there. Yeah. Um, the one that I used was monogrammed maestro with the RF logo because yeah. that was the hot thing at the time, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, if it was the first time you heard it used, I don't know if it was me or not, but uh, definitely the monogram. I chucked that in there with the word maestro. And, and again, you know, it just, it fitted Roger so well. I think it did anyway with, I mean, everybody was obsessed with the RF logo for so long. Yeah. yeah. I thought, yeah, that's, that's a nice one to use. Well, getting to the event at hand, the event that just completed the Wimbledon Championships, uh, the men's side with an unbelievable final to uh, steal a generic term there, but I think it lived up to it in this regard. Carlos Alcaraz dethrones Novak Djokovic, who had won the previous four editions of the Wimbledon tournament. First player outside the big four to win Wimbledon since 2002, Robbie, and he did it in remarkable fashion. Yeah, that's a stat in and of itself, but... What I want to get your thoughts on in this match is the first thing that stands out to me was this match was great. You know, there was drama. The level had moments where it was super high. There was conditions, there was nerves, there's everything. But in a five set match, this kid, this Spanish kid, Carlos Alcaraz, outplayed the very most accomplished player in the sport down the stretch. That was jaw dropping, even for somebody with all the accolades and all the hype that Alcaraz has, Robbie. He outperformed Djokovic in a fifth set of a major final. It's just insane to me. Yeah. You know, I'm just having a look at some of the numbers in that fifth set. Uh, the winners to unforced errors for Alcaraz on the IBM. I, I double, I cross-referenced it with uh, my boys at Hawkeye just to get an mm -hmm. idea. And that was similar. They weren't identical. 18 winners, five unforced errors mm -hmm. in that fifth set. Jocko was uh, three winners, three unforced errors. So the level from Alcaraz in the fifth was phenomenal phenomenal especially considering that he lost the fourth right yeah for me it wasn't an absolute classic because i thought the first and third sets were i've got high standards i'm not going to drop my standards just because it was five sets and it was a final i've seen better five sets uh, at majors it was a very good match 
Uh, I thought the, the first set was one-sided. Uh, I thought Alcaraz was bang average. Uh, the second set was highly entertaining. Um, and I think the number one thing that stands out for me in that whole match is how poorly Djokovic played at the tail end of that second set tiebreaker. The two unforced errors on the backhand on set point and then to give set point on his own set point, the backhand that he missed, and then the very next point, the unforced error on the backhand was mortifying. Uh, I couldn't believe it. He'd made those kind of mistakes. Then obviously the backhand return on set point from Alcaraz was an absolute beaut. Yeah. Uh, backhand winner down the line. But for me, the whole match rests in that moment right there. Djokovic goes up two sets to love. Uh, I don't think Alcaraz comes back to win. He might win a set, but I don't think he wins. I don't think he wins his first Wimbledon. But to navigate that period as well as he did, and of course that long game uh, in the early stages of the third set was um, was was quite extraordinary for a young man. But for me, what this gives to Alcaraz from a mental perspective after what happened at the French Open, that is almost immeasurable for me, Mitch. Mm. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm with you in the sense that there were moments where I wouldn't put this match at the level of some of the all-time all-time greats in terms of the level. It's just how now Alcaraz, as you said, it navigated moments of pressure where so many guys blink, and it's understandable because of who you're playing and someone that's been there before. There were uncharacteristic errors by Djokovic, and that's the cruel nature of this beautiful sport. Robbie is that in a five-hour match, a couple mistakes here or there could be the difference, and. It's how it is. We wouldn't have it any other way, but for a player like Djokovic, the break point that he missed on that swinging overhead that might've gone out was another one where who knows That's right. what happens. That's right. I forgot about that early stage of the fifth to go up to love, wasn't it? I think it was to go up to yeah. love. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, these days, these kind of matches like, you know, literally balance on the width of an atom, right? Uh, it's so competitive, our sport. But um, I think Novak summed it up beautifully after the match, Mitch, when he, when for the first time I've heard him speak about Alcaraz in, in, in really glowing terms. It's like, okay, I've had a feel of this guy now a couple of times and um, I'm really impressed. He is yeah. such a complete player. And he made that reference to the fact that he has a bit of Roger in him, a bit of Rafa in him, and he sees a little bit of himself as well uh, in him. And, you know, that's high praise. Djokovic, this is what I like about Djokovic. He doesn't just dish out that kind of praise. He didn't dish it out the first time he lost to him, right? Yeah, you have He's to earn it. Absolutely. He reserved his judgment, didn't he? You definitely have to earn it. And uh, the other stat I just wanted to mention, Djokovic only two aces in the final, was averaging about 11 coming into this. So that's another great job with Alcaraz return. Uh, you put it on your Twitter feed too, and I think it was summed up pretty good. Alcaraz and what he does, and Djokovic has this in him too, but what Alcaraz brings is that one more ball in play theory where he just gets everything. And he's going to produce more errors because you're not used to hitting that many shots. Yeah, and it's also the effect that um, the psychological effect of his movement. It's like I have to hit the ball closer to the line. That point should have been over then. So the next smash, I have to hit a little bit harder and a little bit closer. And of course, that's when you end up making errors. But you know, his movement, you know, you couple unbelievable movement. I, I call it nuclear athleticism. That's what he's got. You know, you couple that with good anticipation, and you're going to have a guy like Djokovic that is just so difficult to put away. And, you know, I think in the years going forward to beat a guy like Alcaraz, you're going to have to be able to finish at the net because yeah. he just moves too well. And, right. and I think a lot of the youngsters have realized that Holger Rune comes in a lot. Yannick Sinner comes in a lot. For me, one of the best matches in the year 
uh, in the last year has been that Sina Alcaraz quarterfinal. Oh, yeah. You talk about high intensity for five hours. Every single set of tennis was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, that level was, for me, insane. It certainly um, was. It certainly was. I, I you know, I, and I look at it and I look at Alcaraz, the whole body of work already at 20 with two major titles, the number one, everything that he's done. He just built to handle this. Like everyone, like kids today now say oh, someone's built different. He really is in the sense that he's built to handle the weight of these big matches, these big moments, and the responsibility that it comes with being the next guy after this iconic era. But how's this guy's mentality on the court? I have never seen somebody who has such relaxed concentration. Most of the players, I mean, maybe Roger's probably similar in that department, but most guys have intense concentration. I call it relaxed concentration. The fact that he plays with a smile, yeah. he shifts his racket at his box as if to say, okay, watch this now. And, and that is such a great skill to have. Being able to concentrate for long periods of time is taxing. But I yeah. think he's got this formula, Mitch, that, that allows him to concentrate easy, which is a massive advantage. He's, uh, yeah, smiling like after winners. Like, yeah, I did that. That was great. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, right? Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. More with Robbie Koenig here on Tennis Channel Inside and the veteran broadcaster joins the podcast. Um, a lot was made about this win for Alcaraz as a passing of the torch moment. And I don't want to, you know, nay-nay that idea in theory because Alcaraz is a winner. He's going to keep winning. I'm not, <laughs> not going to doubt that at all. But I just also want to point out, Robbie, I don't think that Novak's done winning. I think we got a couple of years left and it's great to have a rivalry of sorts, but I don't think this is a true, like, that's it for Novak. He's done, not in the slightest. No, not in the slightest. Uh, you know, a couple of commentators that I was listening to here were, were talking about the Federer-Sampras match. You know, it, it's similar to that. It's not similar at all. Djokovic has just won two majors this year, by the way. Yeah. And Alcaraz has just and only just sneaked out this one. And I think this is the first year where Novak is has been you know, being able to play the schedule that he wants to play, he'll be able to come back and play. In fact, he hasn't. He didn't. He wasn't allowed to play in the States this year. So his preparation hasn't been ideal yet. Mm -hmm. He'll be allowed to play in the States now in the events leading up to the US Open for the very first time. So he's had such a disrupted last couple of years that, you know, if, if he's going to be in full flow and play the schedule he wants for the next three or four years, he's going to be, he's going to be challenging at the sharp end. I mean, look how easily he cruised through the draw at Wimbledon. But it's definitely no passing of the torch. I, I don't even think it's remotely comparable 
to the Sampras Federer match that everybody was talking oh. about. Federer another two years to win a major, right? Let's not forget that. Yeah. So yeah, no, yeah that's it's it's a good way to put it in the sense that Alcaraz is going to be a threat and and as a co-favorite or favorite in a lot of these tournaments, but the idea that Djokovic is still just, you know, if he's getting into his post prime, he did win two majors this year. He's still going to be <laughs> top two or three, you know, favorite at these events. Um, that, that leads me to my next question, Robbie. I mean, I'm looking at the field and not just this year, but beyond Djokovic, obviously still there, but how do you see Alcaraz's rivals or lack thereof? What's the landscape look like for who can challenge this guy going forward? Um, well, let me start with my number one disappointment at Wimbledon was um, Sebi Korda. You mm -hmm. know, I had high hopes for him. Um, and, uh, you know, I think th this would be a knock mentally for Sebi because he was talking himself up at Queens about how he, he feels he's a contender to win Wimbledon this year. You know, so I think from a psychological point of view, he's going to have to improve, get better. I think Sebi's the kind of guy who's better in the big matches almost. It's, it's navigating those early rounds and where... The burden of expectation is on him to win rather than being the challenger. I think that's what he still has to get used to. Uh, uh, that, that pressure of having to win is, is something we take for granted. It's only when the target's on your back on a regular basis that you get used to it. And, and Sebi hasn't had that. So I was very disappointed with him. But he, he will be one of those guys that I think will challenge Alcaraz. He's definitely got the game um, at times right now. Holger Runa, I think he's got a big-time mentality. He's going to be there and thereabouts. Uh, I've mentioned Yannick Sinner. I think under the tutelage of Darren, he's made some fine tunings to his serve as well. Again, I noticed post-French um, Open, I think he's going to be there and thereabouts. And I think on certain surfaces, I think Massetti on clay could give him a tough time at the French. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more from Lorenzo. But as far as the young guns... Um, those are the ones that spring to mind. I think Francis Tiafo on yeah. his day, as he showed us at the US Open, uh, from an American standpoint, I think Francis is going to be knocking on the door. Probably I'd have him in the category just behind Sinner and Runa. Um, uh, probably if there's other Americans that I was thinking of, like uh, uh, Tommy Paul's playing some of the best tennis of his career. I think he's growing in confidence and believes that he belongs in the top 10. And I think a good run in the summer, Tommy might be there. So those are the guys that just spring to mind. I don't know if I'm leaving anybody out. Is anybody that you, the, the only one I would add, and that's that's a great list, would be maybe Fritz if he if he's oh. well and he comes to you know the way he plays, like you outlined, what it's going to take get to the net. If sir, if Fritz's serve is going, the court's fast. I think he could be one. But but look, it's going to be a tough task. And and I'm also yeah. glad you brought up how it could be surface specific. We yes. could be getting to where Alcaraz transcends all services, but a lot of these players might go back to the pre-big three, big four era where we've got some surface specific results here. Yeah, and, and Mazzetti really stands out. I know they played some matches as juniors, and I remember seeing Lorenzo first before I saw Carlos Alcaraz, and it was actually a, a young kid that my son, who's at Bailey University, mm -hmm. He was practicing with this kid and he goes, no, 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 Mazzetti's good, but there's other kid I was practicing with in Spain called Carlos Alcaraz. He's better. And I said, what are you talking about? Mazzetti's like yeah. unbelievable, man. He's already made third or fourth round in, in Rome. He says, no, no, I'm telling you, this other kid's better. And I said, no way. And of course, he's he was spot yeah. on. You saw that clip that came out on Twitter, that photo where he practiced with Fed before the 2019 quarterfinal at Wimbledon. And, and Ferrero was like, hit it hard, Roger. He can handle it. <laughs> and then here we are four years yeah. later. And it's just brilliant. Eh? 
Hey, props to Juan Carlos Ferrero too, for the work he's done. Former number one, former major champion and someone that doesn't you know, for lack of a better term, doesn't need to be in the coaching world, found someone special and the work they've put in. I go back to consistency, Robbie, like all these guys that are making leaps, just about all of them have had that consistent relationship with their coaching and their team. And I don't think that's a coincidence. You're spot on, Amish. Spot on. And I, I think it's so important these days um, to have that consistency and trust. Eh? Trust is the number one thing. And I think the people that he's got around around him, you know, the guy who actually discovered him, put them in touch was, was his agent, uh, Molina. I'm trying to think of his first name now. Not, uh, not Enric Molina, who's the chair, but Albert Molina. Uh, he saw him uh, when he was 13. And, you know, I think the other person that we mustn't forget is, is his father, who would have done a lot of the coaching in the early years, right? And he created such a, a robust player at 14 years of age, right? There was so much there. And then in, um, Albert Molina said to Juan Carlos, and the timing was perfect because that's just when Juan Carlos had split up with Zverev. Yes. And... Um, uh, I remember Alex Karecha told me the story and he, and he asked him, he says, like, what are you going to do now? He says, I found this kid. He's 14. I've seen him play um, and he's good and he's going to be my next project. Wow. Uh, I've got somebody in the infancy and I can mold and shape them the way I want. But there's stuff there that this kid's doing that no other kid his age does. And, and Alex uh, relayed the story to me. He's always my go-to. He's my Spanish go-to. Okay. He's always a... Uh, he obviously commentates for Spanish TV and, and he's a wealth of knowledge of Alex. And um, so it's been a great partnership. You know, it must be tough. You know, I'm a tennis parent as well, that you create this, the son of yours who you love so much and you give so much time and effort. And then, you know, they go on and somebody else becomes the man who's coaching them. And I would listen, Mitch, if I saw him embrace one Carlos like he did, he's crying, he's loving and hugging. I'm like, what about me? I'm your dad, right? <laughs> yeah, come on, show me some love. Yeah. Well, that's part of being a great tennis parent. I mean, you have the you know the pro high level pedigree experience, but for parents that don't, and you know, you can draw your inferences to who else is out there, men in the women's game. But yeah. sometimes the best decision you can make is, okay, I've taken you as far as I can. Now we got to go to somebody else to really unlock that secret stuff. But yeah, it's just it's special to see. So again. Props to Carlos Alcaraz, Wimbledon champ. It was uh, a phenomenal performance. The world number one keeps it going at age 20. Robbie Koenig now here on Tennis Channel Insight, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the women's final. It was uh, an interesting one. It was uh, an unfortunate letdown in the performance of Anj Jabor, who gets back to the final. But starting from the other side, Robbie, Marketa Vandrosva, Wimbledon champion, the unseated player. That hadn't happened, just an unseated player getting that far in a couple of decades, but she had two grass wins at her pro career at the start of this year's season. And now she's a Wimbledon champ. I mean, I mean, oh, Chris didn't have that many more at the start of this cross. Yeah. I think he yeah. won a couple of matches at, at Wimbledon. That was about it. It's, um, but it just shows you, you know, the cream always rises to the top. A lot of people forgot that she was a French open finalist as well. So let's not forget that she, she'd been deep in a major. And I'm just wondering if like the, the expectations were pretty low for her coming in. And sometimes that's, that's such a powerful position to be in, right? Uh, you don't expect too much, but it just shows you the importance of handling nerves in big situations. We, we so often talk about the game and we make reference to how great someone's serve or forehand or backhand is. But when you get into the biggest moments and the biggest matches, 
you know, it's what's between your ears. That's the glue that keeps the gang together. And Von Drosova, she's just got, you know, we were talking about Alcaraz, what a great personality he has on court. She is very similar. She looks so relaxed mentally yeah. on the tennis court. She, she looks like she's playing with a lot of mental freedom. And, you know, that is invaluable, man. It's invaluable. And, and you can see the flip side of that when you don't have that. And that we saw that glaringly obvious at 4-2 in the opening set for Jabot. I think she won two more points after that. Mm -hmm. Because that 4-2, I think it was two points she won the rest of the set. Yeah, Vondrosova, and people forgot that silver medal run at the Olympics yeah. a couple of years ago, which she beat some pretty talented players to get there. So it's not a complete fluke. And we've talked about the depth of the WTA. There's a lot of players in that mid-level, like the, the mid-level has never been stronger. The top maybe has a little dipped, but you know, the Anjibor thing, and I just wanted to, you know, get your thoughts clearly on it. Do you think that was predominantly, if not all mental fatigue and the weight of expectations, nerves, were there any physical, cause she did. And I bring this up because she did run the gauntlet to get to the final with Kvitova, Rabakina, and then obviously Sabalenka. But do you think it was more, if not all mental nerves? Yeah, I know, definitely, given how well she played in the opening six games, you know, I think if somebody had started the match poorly and, you know, she was down 4-1, double break in no time, then I think it's it's, it's much easier to draw the conclusion um, of what you're suggesting, that that fatigue has set in and she's just tired. Uh, I think it's easier. But, you know, when you get off to such a good start, you're buoyed, you're feeling great, you're up a break, you're playing well. She wasn't like... You know, it wasn't like Vondrosova was playing badly. She was playing well. She was outsmarting her. And, and then, you know, obviously, you, know, you can see that checkered flag there in the distance there, the opening set, well within her grasp. And then you start thinking, well, you know, one set away from being, you know, set up at Wimbledon final. And suddenly all those thoughts start to rush and the ability to stay in the moment, I think, was probably lost right there. You make yeah. one or two bad shot selections. And it's amazing how your mind has this innate ability just to focus on the negative. One bad mistake outweighs 10 good good shots that you've hit prior. Yeah. You're the only one out there too. This is tennis. So you're just out by yourself. Everyone's looking at you. And, you know, look, the weight of expectation on her being where she's from and, and the door she's breaking, it's it's huge. We've, we've discussed it. Also, the psychological factor too, Robbie, of, you know, she was I'm pretty sure the underdog in all the matches I mentioned. Now you come into a final where you're the favorite, you're expected to win. That flips the psyche completely on its head. Absolutely, right? And we, you know, we mentioned that about Sebi Quarter as well. That early on, losing to somebody that he should have beaten, you know, everybody's talking him up as the guy's going to go deep in the tournament. Unless you have been in that situation, it's very difficult to describe to, you know, just an average tennis player or tennis fan. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I get so annoyed when juniors only want to play up. They only want to play better players because that's so easy. It's so easy. If you lose, you've got the excuse, oh, well, they're older than yeah. me. And that's why I always say to coaches, at least a couple of times a week, make sure he's playing against somebody that he should beat and yeah. make sure he drums them when he beats them. And, yeah. and doesn't have... You know, um, just just a weak mind. You go out there and you learn to be the favorite, the front runner. And I think that can be learned from a young age. Um, I'm not saying that's the case for somebody like Ons, but the the theory behind it is exactly the same. 
Um, one of my favorite, one of my favorite people in tennis who have gotten to know out here, Jimmy Arias, said the exact same. I love that guy, man. He put it, he put it perfectly on the tennis.com podcast over here. And he just said, well, losing's a habit, but winning is too. And you have to, you know, not protect your UTR, whatever the metric is, but you've got to put something on the line. So when you play someone your age, you're expected to win and then you got to perform. So I'm in lockstep with you guys there. Uh, you know, gutting to see on so sad. I hope that she can rebound and, you know, get back on track. She's such a bubbling personality for the sport. So, you know, we yeah. wish her, you know, the best going forward too. seven though, Robbie, seven different Wimbledon champions in a row, six in a row that were first time champs. So that's, that's where we are with the women's draw at Wimbledon. Yeah. And you know, the margins are just getting fun and fun and the sport. I think, you know, as, as close as the men's game is, I think it's the margins are even finer in the women's game. Um, and I think, you know, it's testament to the fact that we've had so many different winners in the last seven years. And um, man, what about the Czech Republic as a, you know, Czech Another Republic. Another lefty Czech. Czech, yeah. Czech, yeah. yeah. Got to get that right. It's called yeah. Czech now. So excuse me to uh, our Czech friends out yeah. there. Czech, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just a production line. <laughs> you know, I went back to see where it all started and, um, just having a look at the major winners, you know, it started with Manlikova and Navratilova. Um, they were the ones who really did set the ball rolling. And uh, of course, Martina works for Tennis Channel and uh, probably my favorite goat. She's my goat. Martina. Uh, look, I've always had a soft spot for Martina. Ever look, since he, her rivalry if, with uh, Chrissy was what I grew up with. If we're talking, you know, Wimbledon, Perverse Serena, it's pretty close. Like that's one where, you know, surface specific, right? Like what Martina did at that tournament at the background you have on your Zoom chat here, she was, and doubles too. Like there's, you know, what she's done there will never probably be seen again. So. Well, yeah, they, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great Martina stats, yeah. but my favorite one of all and um, will be that she has won the doubles at every major at least seven times. Yeah. What? That's yeah, that's just, right? that's at least fair. seven, some more. But just getting back, you know, she got the ball rolling, uh, obviously, being from Czechia and Manlikova, and then they just started to come after that, right? There were just so many. Um, and they've been a powerhouse in, in Fed Cup, Billie Jean King Cup now. And, yeah, I'm, I'm just fascinated. You know, I always pick the brains of my my Czech friends and those who are still involved in Czech tennis. And, you know, I don't know if there's a specific formula. It's, it's a bit of everything. Some psycho parents, some great coaches. Great coaching seems to come up a lot. Yeah. Um, I think technically they're, they're very good. They build a, a very robust player. Um, and it seems like the, the club tennis system there is so vibrant. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the nice contrast of clay outdoors in the summer and slightly quicker indoors during the cooler months. So you get that you know, very different stroke making that you have to produce and very central in Europe. So it's easy to drive everywhere and, you know, play in Germany or Spain or wherever else, Switzerland. So I think, you know, geographically that works well. And they're not the biggest country in the world. I think 10 million population I read. And I made the comparison on Twitter to, and I, I, use, about, I use the word culture. And I think it's important. Their tennis culture is so strong. And I compared it to the um, the All Blacks. I don't know if you follow rugby, but the oh, New, yeah. New, Blacks. Mm -hmm. now, New Zealand's a country of, of 5 million people, but their rugby culture is just they're rugby crazy. And they have dominated the sport since the 80s. Yeah. They are the winningest international team in all of sport. 
and they've got five million population, right? Yeah. I mean, because their rugby culture is so strong from the top end right through, you know, all the school levels. Um, and they're able to beat everybody because their culture is so good. And I think it's the same for, for Czech tennis and especially strong on the women's side. Yeah, we'll see if the men's, you know, Yuri Laheka's coming up. He's looked like he's got a promising game, but yeah, the women, it's just, it's insane stuff. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Robbie, before we wind this down, I did want to get your thoughts on another thing because, you know, I get some I get some of my research notes from Twitter and the exchanges that go on here. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago on this show, I had a, a great writer for tennis now, Chris Otto, the fan child on Twitter on here. And the topic of Coco Golf's forehand came up, which unfortunately has been letting her down. And I just wanted to pick your brain about the the topic and the exchange you had regarding how tough it is to make, you know, drastic changes to re- you know, restructure a weapon, a tool in a tennis tool bag at any point in your career, let alone at the pro level. And your belief that a lot of it, maybe in Coco's case, maybe in general, is between the ears and it's the mindset. If we could just kind of expand on that, her forehand obviously is the weak link in an otherwise all-worldly game. Yeah. So if you have a look at the grip, it's not too dissimilar to the best player in women's tennis at the moment, Igor Sviantek. But I think this... this the one thing I would do is I just shorten the swing. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally wouldn't go about changing the grip. I think that the the, uh, the mind memory, and I like to use it mind memory because it's the mind that it's not muscle memory, it's mind memory. There are so many reps that have already gone into it. I think it's very difficult, and it's not like she's a bad player, right? She's top mm-hmm. ten in the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so let's get that straight. But I think shorten the swing, which I think is easier to do. And she's got to be very aggressive with that shot. She, she's got to learn to dominate with the shot. Because for me, that's the difference between her and Sviantek. If the ball comes down the middle of the court, Sviantek is looking to jump around and dominate with the forehand. Whereas the mindset of Coco would be to step inside the forehand occasionally. And I noticed that in big moments against Kenan, step inside and hit the backhand. That would be her preferred shot. So, And Kenan said it right afterwards. As soon as the pressure's on, I'm going straight to the forehand. So I think if, if Coco can just do those two things, just fine-tune the size of the swing, keep it a lot more compact, she's got the power. If you can just add a bit more control to it, um, I think that would go a big way to helping her. And then her mindset of being ultra-positive with that shot. Yeah. And, you know, that central ball comes in the middle of the court. Yeah. She's got to be brave enough to step around and crank her forehand either inside out or inside in or hard up the middle. But as long as as long as she's still stepping inside forehands to hit backhands, I think I'll still have questions about uh, how much she trusts that shot and how much she wants to dominate with that shot. That's why I go to you guys, the experts, because everyone can see a problem, but I want to know the, the ins and outs of what goes into it. And and something else you said that I would I had to think about, but I would agree with, you know, Djokovic's serve might have been the biggest change retooling that we've seen. But as you pointed out, that's the one shot where you have complete control over. 
And that's the difficulty when you're changing a ground, a ground stroke, if you were going to do a complete overhaul with a, a grip change. And when I say complete overhaul, any change is a complete overhaul. It feels, if you're moving at a millimeter to, to the pros, it feels like a major change, right? So let me get that straight. But you know, the moment movement's involved, it just complicates things even further. So when you're talking about changing a grip on a forehand, your, your contact point is so often, you know, it's, it's a couple of millimeters, it, it, it's there, it's, it's always changing. That's my point, it's always changing. So to get it right is so difficult. You have to spend thousands of hours um, making it feel comfortable. And I'm not sure she needs that much of an overhaul. I think just shortening it, keeping it nice and compact and being really aggressive with her swing, um, that would be my solution. If, if Robbie Koenig was asked to be the coach for the next year, um, too soon to panic. Definitely too soon to panic. Uh, wrapping things up here with Robbie Koenig here on Tennis Channel Insight and a blast talking tennis, talking Wimbledon with you. Pointing out about this time of year too, it's the transition period. There's events on all these different services. We've got the Newport Hall of Fame open in Rhode Island here in the States. There's some clay court events going on right now. Hard courts on the way. I bring it all that up, Robbie, to say that this is when players can still find their footing or trying to find their footing to salvage a good year and, and really have a good hard court season. So I think while this week might not be the most consequential in terms of results, it's pretty important to just clear off the slate after Wimbledon hit the ground running, because as we know, the open will be here before you know it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the top 10 or 15 players in the world, they've probably had a good Wimbledon and they're getting some well, uh, well-deserved time off, but for a lot of players, you know, the rest of the field, those guys between say 20 and hundred, you know, they probably haven't won as many matches. Good chance to get some, some good wins under your belt. You've got some of the uh, 250s on clay now. You've got another grass court tournament, if that's your preferred surface. A hey, shout out to Kevin Anderson, who's coming back in Newport. Yeah. Um, I feel like that one in there. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you can tee yourself up. My point is you can tee yourself up nicely before the hard courts come uh, come around in the U.S. With, with some good match wins. You know, a couple of quarterfinals at these um, 250s on clay, infuse yourself with a bit of confidence, get some match wins, and then you hit the ground running um, on the hard courts. So, I mean, I, I'm just thinking off the top of my head how Casper Ruud a couple of years ago used this time of the year to really tee himself up mm -hmm. in his career, right? Winning all three of the clay court tournaments. So um, I think if you've got the right mindset, it's a good chance to capitalize now. You get the Americans too that have spent, you know, what three months over overseas. So I think they're just happy to be home, and that might have something to do with how positive their game go. We hear a lot of it now with social media being a thing. They're telling us out loud, like, "Man, this is a long, long trip across the pond." But you know, they're happy to be back. And uh, I do want one of the names we forgot to mention. Just hardcore season can't not bring up Danny Medvedev because I think he's going to be in the thick of things for all of these hardcore events all the way through the Open. Yeah, and especially the fact that he's won so many matches, you know, on the clay, on the grass. So, yeah, I think he's won enough. He's going to be primed and ready. He's like, hell, guys, if I can compete with you on the clay and the grass as well as I have, just wait. He's giving yeah. one of these ones, isn't he? He's like, you guys, yeah. just wait. Just wait. Well, I want to end with this. You've been uh, very gracious with your time. Uh, we know about the broadcasting career. We know about the, the playing career. How has it been being a tennis parent? You know, you got your son, Luke, at Baylor, now getting into the college game. Was that, did you know much about college tennis before Luke was on the radar at some of these college programs? 
Um, a little bit, not a lot. I'd say on a scale of one to 10, I probably was about a 2.7. Okay. <laughs> so not a lot, but it's been amazing. Uh, the coaches at Baylor have been amazing. It's, it's a phenomenal school. We feel, we feel very blessed that he's there, first of all. Um, but I could not believe the depth when I did some of the recruiting trips last year. I was blown away. Uh, we went to watch a couple of matches. Uh, Kentucky was also after him. Uh, we watched a couple of matches there. We saw Baylor play a couple of matches. And, and I was blown away by the depth. You know, I almost went to college myself back in uh, 1990. Uh, and I went straight pro. I should have played college tennis, uh, Mitch. I definitely should have. And I played against some of the, the top college guys, a guy called Steve Bryan from University of Texas. I think he won NCAAs the one year. And the top few guys were good, but the depth is not like it is now. I mean, tennis is an expensive game. Now it's, you know, relatively from when I was playing in those early days, you could play futures and break even quite comfortably. You know, the cost of living isn't what it is now. And the prize money was, okay, you won a couple of matches, you more than paid for your hotel and your expenses. If you didn't have a coach, if you just, you know, I didn't have a coach, but now it's a different ballgame. You know, 25, 30 years later, it's, it's inflation. It's very expensive to travel. Hotels aren't what they used to be. Tennis is an expensive sport. So going to college is a great stepping stone. Get your level up. If you can't cut at college tennis, uh, you know, it's tough to go pro. I would say, yeah, you'll, you'll find it difficult. But we've seen the upside of this is that the guys who are good at college are making their transition to the pro game pretty well, man. It's way better and deeper now. Like it is night and day this last decade specifically. And we're seeing a lot more of a path pro to college. And if worst case scenario is you go play college, you get an education and, you know, have, that's that's a pretty good worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget as well, they have the, the player pathways uh, with wild cards. If you, you know, mm -hmm. one of the top 10 players in college, you get X number of uh, challenger wild cards. And if you're 11 to 20, um, yeah. there's also a facility there for you to get into some qualies. So I think that is a great venture between the challenger tour and, and the college system. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really becoming, it's not quite like your sports in America where it's, it's the only pathway to like the NBA or, or playing baseball or, or NFL. Mm -hmm. It's become a, a good conduit though for tennis players now. Yeah. Well, like we're seeing it with, uh, he, he won today, Alex Mickelson supposed to go to Georgia. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> he's, he's brother, you're good, good enough. <laughs> yeah. But no props to your son, you know, best of luck to Luke at Baylor. And, uh, it's gotta be an exciting time for you to have, you know, this is a new, you know, ignition point for tennis as well. But, uh, Robbie Koenig, this was fun. Hope we get to do this again sometime, but it was a blast to finally have the interaction, talk some tennis and, uh, cover the Wimbledon championships. Thanks so much for joining tennis channel inside in. Thanks for having me on the show, Mitch. Always a pleasure, bud. Thanks to Robbie Canning, one of the best broadcasters in the business, for appearing on this week's episode of Inside In. He's a blast to talk tennis with, a very likable guy. I'm going to call my shot. We will be doing another one of these podcasts in the future. Thanks again to Robbie Canning. And thanks again to everybody out there for listening to Inside In, this growing podcast you want episodes of this show downloaded automatically to your phone, your tablet, your listening device, it's really simple. Go to your favorite podcast platform. We are on every single one of them, whether it's Spotify, whether it's Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart, whatever it is, subscribe right there. And that's all you need to do. Podcasts will show up, download it automatically. 
You'll get to hear Inside In as it's released. Check out our YouTube channel as well for full video episodes like last week's with Lindsay Davenport. Some great content on the TC YouTube channel as well as tennis.com slash podcast for the entire catalog of shows on our outstanding network. We're back next week, same time, same place, every Thursday, a new episode of Inside In Drops. A lot to talk about as we gear up for the start of the U.S. Open Hardcourt Series. Tennis is taking over North America. We're on the road to the fourth major, the final major of the year. Hard to believe. A lot to shake out. A battle for number one on both tours now emerging. Who's going to be playing their best tennis going into New York? A lot of storylines and subplots in the game we all know and love. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thanks again to our guest, Robbie Canning. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. We'll see you next week.